أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد أشرف المرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد الفاتح لما أغلق والخاتم لما سبق ناصر الحق بالحق وهادي إلى صراطك المستقيم وعلى آله حق قدره ومقداره العظيم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد عدد قطر الأمطار وعدد أوراق الأشجار وعدد مثاقيل الجبال والأحجار اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد عدد ما ذكره الذاكرون وعدد ما غفل عنه الغافلون أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته We begin in the name of Allah the most gracious the most merciful and we send his peace and blessings upon our most beloved our most perfect Romaru the greatest of creation Sayyid Al-Qawnayn Al-Sadiq Al-Ameen Khatim Al-Nabiyyin Muhammad Ibn Abdullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and his family and his companions and all those who follow him until the final day. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us of them. And it's important that we start sending blessings upon the Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam when we speak about such a momentous occasion in his life. Speaking about his hijrah, his migration from Mecca to Medina. His migration from a city, the city where he was born, to the city where he established Islam. And the reason that we speak about this occasion is obvious where as we pass a new year and we enter into the month of Muharram, we enter into a new Hijri year, a new year in the Islamic calendar, which itself is founded on the Hijrah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. To give a bit of background, at the time of the Khalifa, Amr ibn Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu, there was a problem which he noticed arise, which required solving. This problem happened twice. The first time, a man came to Amr radiallahu and he complained that, I've loaned somebody some money, and the man agreed that he would pay me back by Shawwal, and he still hasn't paid me back. And Umar, being the leader of his society, had to try to find a way to resolve the problem between these people. So he asked him, which Shawwal were you referring to when you made this agreement? And that alone made them realize that there was an issue here, where we don't have a way of specifying our years. Because you see, at the time, the Muslims, they followed the pre-Islamic lunar calendar. So they had their 12 months in the year, which revolved around the phases of the moon, and which we still follow today, and this is allowed by the Qur'an and the Sunnah. But they didn't have a way of determining the year. The Arabs at the time, Quraysh, and the Arabs in Mecca and in Arabia, the way that they would refer to their years was by events and occasions that occurred in those years. So for example, Rasulullah was born in a year which they referred to as Amul Fil, the year of the elephant. And that was their tradition, to name it after important events. So that Rasulullah was born in a year where the biggest event that happened in that year was the attempted conquering of Mecca by a foreign state and a foreign leader with an army of elephants, which was a massive thing for them. And so they referred to it as the year of the elephant. Another time, Umar he received a letter from the wali of Baghdad, the governor of Baghdad, which was a Sahabi, Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, and in this letter, Abu Musa, he said, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, Every now and then we receive instructions from you. But the instructions, these letters, they don't have a date on them. And sometimes the contents of the letters differ. Sometimes you tell us to do one thing, other times you tell us to do the opposite. And so it becomes difficult for us to determine which of these instructions are we meant to follow. In the modern day alone, this would be confusing. But especially for them, where a messenger from Medina to Baghdad would take weeks or months to arrive. 
putting aside even if there were any issues where the messenger might face any obstacles in his way, he might get lost, he might pass away, he might get sick, he might get kidnapped. They didn't have a way of determining when was this message sent, which is the most recent one. So Umar who was a man of action, he decided we need the resolution to allow for our state, for our khilafah to continue to function effectively. So he called for a gathering of the Sahaba. And here alone we have a hikmah from Umar, which is this concept of shura in Islam, where you consult and you ask for advice from people with knowledge. So he called the senior Sahaba, عنهم, he called the experts in this field, and he asked them, we need a way of determining dates. What should we do? So one person suggested using the Roman calendar, Another person, Hurmuzan, suggested the Persian calendar. But Amr, who was a man who didn't like adopting from foreign societies, he didn't like adopting from different societies, he wanted Islamic, he wanted to establish Islam's own basis. And so he decided we need our own calendar formed on our own basis, on our own terms. And so then the next question became from when should we start this calendar? And the options ranged, there were many options which the Sahaba suggested. The birth of Rasulullah, the beginning of his prophethood and the first revelation, the year of the passing of Rasulullah, the year where Mecca was first conquered, or the immigration, the hijrah from Mecca to Medina. This was suggested by Ali. And Ali himself played a very key role in the hijrah, where he was the one who slept in the bed of Rasulullah, and he he faked as if he were the one, he were Rasulullah in his bed so that when Quraysh came to attack, they would still think somebody was in the bed. So Ali knew this event very well. He knew the Hijrah very well. And he was the one who suggested that this date be the advent, the beginning of the calendar of the Muslims. So after a lot of consideration, Umar radiallahu anhu, he decided to adopt the opinion of Ali. And he chose for the Hijrah year to be the beginning of the Islamic calendar. There's a very important question to be asked here, which is why did Umar choose this over so many other occasions within the Hijrah? The birth of Rasulullah itself is such a massive year. His passing caused such a massive change and a shift for the Muslims. The, conquer, the conquest of Mecca was such a massive occasion. So why choose the Hijrah? This year specifically had to have some very, very, very detailed reasons or specific reasons to be chosen by the Muslims and by Umar who was a man who left no stone unturned in making his decisions. And in order to understand this, we need to look into the details and understand really what the depth behind these events in the life of Rasulullah And here's another important point, that the seerah of Rasulullah has become very often for us like bedtime stories. There are stories that we tell about his life, about his birth, his childhood, the reception of the message of the wahi from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the events of his life in Mecca, followed by his hijrah, followed by his life in Medina, and so many of these stories that we learn from a young age. But the issue, a large issue that we face in our ummah, is that we treat these stories like bedtime stories. We tell these stories to our children, and we learn them as we grow up, but we don't learn the depth behind them. It becomes a cute story of how Rasulullah and his best friend, they traveled from one city to another and they hid in the cave and the, you know, the, the story of the spider and of the bird in the nest. And these events or these details of the stories we learn. But we don't learn the message and the depth behind these. Because we need to remember that Rasulullah is Uswatun Hasana. He is the greatest of examples. He is an example meant for us to follow. So his seerah and his life should be studied to know the details and to learn the concepts that he came to teach so that we can emulate them in our life. 
So regarding this cho- this uh, this choice of the hijrah to be the start of the calendar for the Muslims, there's a there's a there's a quote from Amr which is recorded by Ibn Hajar al Asqalani in his book the Fath al Bari, where he says Amr he says that the hijrah separated truth from falsehood. Therefore, it should become the beginning, the epoch of the era. It should define, because this event defined the life of Rasulullah It defined the separation of truth from falsehood, which was the goal of Rasulullah So you can choose the birth of Rasulullah, or you can choose the beginning of the revelation, which made Rasulullah a prophet. But his prophecy would not have been complete without the hijrah. Without this momentous occasion which allowed him to finally establish what he had been sent to establish. You could choose the Fatah of Mecca or the Battle of Badr or so many other momentous occasions that came after the Hijrah but none of these could have been completed without the establishment of the state which occurred following the Hijrah. In order to understand this we need to look at what the Hijrah really was. What the Hijrah really meant for the, for the Muslims at the time. Because you see the Hijrah itself was not just the movement from one city to another. Before that there was a smaller hijrah where some Muslims went from Mecca and they moved to Abyssinia and they lived there under the protection of the leader of the Abyssinians. They lived there safely. They didn't have the same threats that the Muslims faced in Mecca. But this hijrah isn't recorded. This hijrah isn't so momentous and there's no calendar that starts on the same date as this hijrah. Rather the hijrah from Mecca to Medina was more than this. Again, we look at the details but then we ignore the greater concept and the depth behind it. Many people describe this hijrah as if it was a movement from the Muslims to try to avoid the torture and the oppression that they faced by the people in Mecca, which is partly true but isn't a complete picture. You see, the hijrah defined for the Muslims when the Islam went from private to public. While they were in Mecca, the acts of ibad which were defined for the Muslims were purely private. They had to pray and it was ordained on them to pray. They had fasts which were recommended or commanded on them. They had actions of ibadah which were recommended or commanded to them. But in terms of the public sphere, many of the commandments from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had not yet been sent down. Commandments which define the way that a society functions. Things such as zakat and you know the distribution of zakat within a society. Things such as the mu'amalat, these laws which dictate your transactions with other people. Which really affect the way that a whole economy and therefore a whole society runs. The implementation of the whole deen could not be completed without the hijrah and the independence which the Muslims uh, gained from it. So following the hijrah, the Muslims did not just have security or they didn't just have safety from the oppression of Quraysh. Rather, they had more than that. They had their own society. They had their own security. They had their own independence. They were able to act without being under the authority of others. And a key way of understanding this is by looking at the process which Rasulullah went through in order to, you know, to migrate away from Mecca. He didn't migrate to the first people that offered him protection because he went to many tribes before, before he came to the people of Medina, the people of Yathrib. He went to other tribes such as uh, you know, Bani Ta'if seeking their protection before they rejected him and they turned him away in the tragic incident that we, that we know of. He went to other tribes and he sought their protection and he told them, let, me, let us migrate to your city and towards your tribe to living with you. And with many of these they accepted but with strings attached. Many tribes, for example, there were of those who said that we'll accept you and we'll accept you as our leader and we'll protect you from everybody, but we won't protect you from the Persians because we have good ties with them. We have an alliance with them, so we can't possibly attack them and go to war with them. 
There were of those who made the same deal but with the Romans. There were of those who said, look, we'll accept and we'll take you as our leader. But once you pass away, somebody from our tribe should take charge and should be the next leader of the Muslims. And all of these offered the security and safety from the oppression that the Muslims faced in Mecca. But Rasulullah he didn't accept. He refused until he found somebody who would accept on his terms, which was to establish a complete society based on Islam. So you see, the evidence is there very clear that Rasulullah wasn't just looking for a safe haven for the Muslims to rest. Rather, he was looking for somewhere to implement Islam. He was looking for a base from which they could then spread Islam to the rest of the world, through da'wah, through jihad, where none of these things were really done effectively before the migration from Mecca to Medina. And you can see this very clearly when you compare the Muslims pre-Medina, pre-Medina and post-Medina, or pre-Hijra and post-Hijra. The greatest example is Rasulullah where before the Hijra, he was tortured and he was boycotted by his people. Before the Hijra, only two or three years prior, was what was known as Amul Huzun, the year of grief, the year of sorrow, where he saw his uncle passed away, his wife passed away from these boycotts and the extremely harsh measures which his own tribe were placing against him. The Muslims were boycotted, the Muslims were starving, the Muslims were poor, they were broken. And this was Rasulullah was his own tribes, his own families, his own relatives who were doing this to him. We can see how he was at the lowest point physically speaking, materially speaking, he was at the lowest point that somebody could be at. And yet very quickly, once the bay'ah was given to him by the people of Medina, and he was able to migrate from Mecca to Medina, his, com- his complete situation changed. He went from being somebody who was at the lowest rank of society to being the leader of a state. You can see in the da'wah of the Muslims, where in the 13 years in Mecca, there were only a handful of sahaba, a few dozen reaching up to one or two hundred maximum who had embraced Islam. Yet once he went to Medina, the numbers shot up by the hundreds within years. By the time that he passed away, there were over a hundred thousand who had accepted Islam. And so we see the effect that this had on the da'wah. We see that the Muslims where before the hijrah, the commandments that they were given in terms of physical, uh, uh, physical combat with the Quraysh, they were told, They were told, keep your hands to yourself, don't retaliate. Because they weren't in a position where they could retaliate. Whereas when Rasulullah was on the way from Mecca to Medina, he hadn't even arrived yet and established his state, he was given the first commandments of jihad. The first ayat that were revealed commanding jihad were revealed between Mecca and Medina. And this gives us a clear image that jihad could not be carried without the implementation of a state. And the objective of jihad is to spread Islam around to neighboring tribes and neighboring countries. Why? To be able to establish justice. Because we know that Islam is just, we know that Islam is merciful, we know that Islam is complete. And so to be able to spread this justice to other people, jihad is one of the means and is one of the necessary means which our deen gives to us. It couldn't be established before the hijrah, yet the first commandment was given on the way from Mecca to Medina before Rasulullah was even, was even, had even arrived. We see the change in the security of the Muslims. A clear example is when in Mecca, Rasulullah he was helpless to defend the Muslims. A very obvious example is that of the family of Yasir and Sumayyah, who were some of the first to accept Islam. They accepted on the hands of their child Ammar, who gave them the da'wah, a young boy at the time. And when the people of Quraysh found out, they began to torture them. And when Rasulullah would walk past them while they were being tortured, he had nothing to say except Sabran Ala Yasir, Sabran Ala Yasir. Be patient, O family of Yasir. He couldn't offer them any material support. He couldn't offer them any protection. He couldn't actually fight to protect them physically. All he could tell them was have patience. 
And isn't that similar to the situation that we see the Muslims around the world in at the moment? Where our Muslim brothers and sisters around the world are being tortured, are being killed, are being oppressed. And what can we say to them from where we are now? Except sabr. Have patience. Because what help can we give them materially at this point except to have patience at the hands of the oppressors? Compare this to a situation after the hijrah. Where Rasulullah in establishing his state, there were of course, it wasn't just Muslims within Medina. There were many Jewish tribes who lived within the same city. And so they had a treaty known or a constitution almost in Medina where they had an agreement of peace between these tribes. Yet one time, the people of Qaynuqa, a few of them, pinned the clothes of a woman onto the chair that she was sitting on. Such that when this Muslim woman came to stand up, her clothes tore and a part of her leg was displayed to the people of public. So they exposed her aura to the public as a prank. One Muslim man who saw this, he witnessed this act of shaming a woman. He killed the Jewish man who was responsible for this. He took justice into his own hands. And so then the Jews came in a group and then they killed this Muslim man. And then there was a, you know, there, there were some skirmishes and there were some killings in response. And so Rasulullah he came in and essentially, eventually, he expelled the Bani Qayruqa. He kicked them out of the city because what? They had breached the agreement, the treaty that had been put in place. Now compare the two situations. You have the family of Yasir, Yasir and Sumayyah who were eventually killed at the hands of the people of Quraysh. Murdered in cold blood. Why? For saying La ilaha illallah. And Rasulullah could say nothing to them except have patience. And then on the other hand, you have a tribe who exposed the leg of a Muslim woman and in response the whole tribe was expelled from the city. This is what happens when the Muslims have independence. This is what Rasulullah was able to do to protect Islam and to protect Muslims and to protect the honor of the Muslims and the honor of the Muslim women. He was able to retaliate with the response so strong that nobody would dare do the same thing again. And so we can see that there was a difference in terms of the security and the independence that the Muslims were able to have. So many other examples such as Bilal ibn Abi Rabbah anhu, who in Mecca, he was a slave, he was tortured. He was put under burning rocks in the middle of the sun, the burning, scorching desert of Arabia. Why? For saying La ilaha illallah. For saying Ahadun Ahad. He was tortured and tortured. After the hijrah, who was he? He was a mu'adhan of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He was of the most respected within the society. He had the most freedom within society from being a slave earlier, where the Muslims could do nothing to protect him physically. And compare also the oppression that he faced in Mecca for being a black slave and for being a Muslim. Whereas when he was in Medina, where there was one incident where a Sahabi uttered a word of racism to him, he could immediately go to Rasulullah and justice was imposed and he was apologized to and they were able to reconcile the situation. So you can see this racism and oppression and, and injustice when he was in Mecca, when he was in Medina, he was respected, he was honored, he was the Mu'adhan and he was able to seek justice when he was wronged. So many other examples such as Mus'ab ibn Umayr who sacrificed his mother's love when he was in Mecca. He became of the poor, he was always wearing old ripped clothes so that the Muslims would cry when they would see him. But he was the first one sent to Medina and he was able to educate the people on Islam and even leaders of Medina embraced Islam at his hands. This is what the Hijrah represented to the Muslims. It wasn't merely the moving from one city to another. It wasn't just about, you know, changing your location. It wasn't just about avoiding oppression and torture. It was so much more than that. Once Islam was established in Medina, the Muslims could really, really, really develop the Islam there. They could actually implement Islam to its complete 
you could see that in Mecca, so many aspects of Islam that we have today can't be applied in a society. And we see it today in our own society. So many aspects of Islam that we can't apply because we don't have independence within our own state, within our own society. Things like riba. Where you tell somebody to avoid riba, but no matter how much effort you put in, and no matter what you do as an individual, riba will somehow touch you and affect you. You see it through things like transactions and mu'amalat, where issues like insurance, which, are, you know, which in Islam are doubtful or haram, but then no Muslim can avoid them because of the way that the society is structured. Things like our transactions with other people, our business dealings, things like awra, and avoiding haram, lowering your gaze, which become impossible when you have no authority over a society. To the extent where we see examples like in France where a Muslim woman is forced to remove her hijab to be able to stay in certain locations. These things occur because you have no independence. These things occur because as Muslims we don't have control over our own affairs, where you can't even apply the deen individually, let alone over a society. Issues such as the protection of Muslims from torture, from oppression that they face around the world, as we mentioned earlier. How can we possibly defend our Muslim brothers and sisters around the world in the situation that we're currently in? When you see our brothers and sisters in Palestine, when you see them in Syria, when you see them in China in concentration camps, when you see them in Burma and Myanmar kicked out of their country, when you see them in Kashmir being killed, in Chechnya, in Sudan, the oppression that the Muslims face and what can we possibly do from the situation that we're currently in? How can we possibly provide them justice? How can we possibly provide them peace? And this is where we must look to the example of Rasulullah wasallam. As we said, he is provided to us as an example, not just as a story to learn. He is provided to us as an example to implement Islam in its totality. And when we see what Rasulullah wasallam, what he sacrificed and what he went through to be able to establish his state, to be able to establish the, the, the society of Islam, to be able to establish Sharia and the Khilafah, of the, of the Khulafat who, who continued on after him We see the justice that emanated from that We see the peace that emanated from that We see the amount of people who embraced Islam We see the amount of knowledge of Islam that developed as a result of that For centuries that continued on afterwards We see when you look at you know, the periods of Islam The Uthmani Khilafah, the Abbasid Khilafah, the, the, the Umayyad Khilafah And what they were able to achieve materially and Islamically the levels of Islamic knowledge they were able to reach. Why? Because they could actually practice and learn the Islam throughout their day-to-day life. You know, you go speak to anybody and tell them, <clears throat> tell them to pray in the masjid five times a day. But how can any one of us do that when you have jobs to cater for? When you have to, you know, we don't have control over our jobs. We don't have control over our, our hours. You don't have control over your schools, your university classes. We don't have the ability to do this basic thing in Islam such as praying in the masjid five times a day. Yet when the Muslims were able to do that, and when they, they were able to discuss Islam without any, you know, any threats imposed on them, without any obstacles before them, they were able to expand Islam. They were able to research to the deepest of knowledge. They were able to develop the greatest of scholars and mujtahideen. So this is what they were able to establish in terms of Islam. And then materially as well, we see that the Muslims reached the greatest of heights. The greatest of knowledge in terms of the sciences, in terms of mathematics, in terms of history, in terms of the arts, where the Muslims were at the peak of civilization, where the whole world looked to Islam and the Islamic civilizations as the peak of society, where militarily they were able to expand and they were able to threaten anybody who even dared to threaten Islam and the Muslims, where anybody who attempted to threaten the Muslims or attempted to you know, insult Rasulullah the Muslims could immediately send the response and tell them, this is beyond our limits. And if you do this, there will be repercussions. How can we do that today? 
How can we protect the honor of our fellow Muslims today? How can we protect the integrity of our deen today when we don't have this authority? So the hijrah is an occasion for us to be able to reflect on this, to be able to understand the implementation of Islam and how Islam has really come to benefit mankind. How Islam has come, as Allah says in the Quran, to be able to implement it over all other manifestations of life, over all other concepts, over all other deens. Islam is meant to do this. It's not just a private practice, but as Rasulullah demonstrated, it's meant to be practiced in public. It's meant to be applied within a society. And it is only then that you can really provide justice. It is only then that you can really provide safety and peace to the Muslims around the world. So inshallah, this is a lesson that we can learn as we pass the advent of a new year. It's a lesson that we can reflect on and it's a lesson that we can take on board to try to implement within our day-to-day actions. To always constantly remind ourselves of what Islam is meant to be and how we can contribute to that. How we can contribute to the revival of Islam. How we personally, with the people around us, with the organizations around us, with our ummah collectively, can work to lift our ummah from the situation that it's currently in. To gain independence, to gain security, to be able to establish a state just like Rasulullah did and to implement Islam in its fullest. Because wallahi, any command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we don't implement is dhulm from us. It's a dhulm to not apply a rule that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent to you. And how can you apply most of these without our own independence? So it's a lesson for us to take insha'Allah and to apply as much as we can to follow the example of Rasulullah May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us all worthy of the title of the Ummah Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. May he make us of those who carry this Ummah, who revive this Ummah, and insha'Allah may he make it a testimony for us on the Day of Judgment. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.